This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, happy New Year's Day as we celebrate uh, the, the beginning, the turning of a calendar year. But more than that, you know, as, as Catholics, we celebrated the liturgical New Year as Advent began. We're well past Advent into the octave of Christmas. Uh, and, and now um, we're celebrating something very particular, uh, a particular mystery of the Incarnation, uh, the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. And as a, as a convert, um, and as many converts who are considering, uh, who have come into the Catholic Church, as many Protestants who are considering the Catholic Church, the doctrines around Mary are some, some of the last hurdles. They're troublesome because they feel so foreign and different from uh, a particular branch of Christianity that has focused primarily on Christ and the person of Christ. Um, as we have come, grown up, I grew up in evangelical Protestantism, uh, everything was about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so this idea of, of um, Mary being the mother of God, Mary, the other Marian doctrines that we've talked about on the show over the years, it feels out of character with the way that Christianity has been presented to a number of us uh, before we became Catholic. And so um, for me, it wasn't as big of a hurdle because in my journey to Catholicism, there were other things that convinced me that the church was true, and I just decided that I was going to trust the church on this aspect. But some people really wrestle with this idea of why do we elevate Mary to this place in Catholicism? Uh, so to talk about that, we're going to talk with Joe Heschmeyer. He is a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. We've had him on the show numerous times, including to talk about some of the other Marian doctrines. You can find those in the archives by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, uh, clicking on the, the three bars in the top left-hand corner of the page. It'll expand out a little menu, find his name, click on it, and there you'll see all the episodes that we've had Joe on. Joe, thanks for being with us today. I'm thrilled to be here. So you've got a, a new book. Uh, every time you come on, it's recently, it's like, and now there's another one. Uh, and this book is called The Early Church Was Catholic. Well, the Early Church Was the Catholic Church. The Early Church Was the Catholic Church. It's available on Catholic Answers. Uh, and I want to talk to you about the early church was the Catholic church in relation to some of these doctrines that feel very weird to people who, who thought that they grew up in Christianity, and and of course they did uh, because they were baptized. We share common baptism, but this just feels so weird, and yet it's very old. So let's break this out. Yeah, well, I think the, even the way you kind of presented that, I want to make it clear to anyone listening that we care about Mary exclusively because we care about Jesus Christ. Right. That it isn't like like, well, she had really interesting taste in clothes, and so there's this other part of her life apart from her following of Christ and her devotion to God and her being the mother of God. No, no, everything we care about with her is Christological. And that becomes really clear when you get into the weeds of the controversy over calling her mother of God. Uh, so as listeners may or may not know, uh, this whole controversy blew up with a fellow by the name of Nestorius, who... Uh, was bishop in Constantinople, and he argued that we should stop calling Mary um, Theotokos, which in Greek literally means uh, God-bearer, but basically means mother of God. Uh, 
And he said, instead, we should just call her Christotokos. We should just call her Christbearer. And uh, he was quickly accused of heresy by this, actually originally by a layman, uh, a, a Eusebius, I believe. And then uh, the patriarch of Alexandria, St. Clement, uh, really stood up to him as well. And, and so the reason this matters, uh, yes, I, I said Clement, I, said, I meant Cyril. Uh, the reason this matters is that if Mary's not the mother of God, then Christ isn't God. Right. And I, when you really get into the weeds of what Nestorius was arguing for, he argued, you know, she's the mother of Christ, but not the mother of God. That's introducing a separation in the one divine person. Uh, right. in, in really technical terms, he's arguing that there were two uh, hypotheses. You know, that you had basically the, the coexistence of a divine person, uh, and, you know, the second person of the Trinity, with a human person, Christ Jesus, uh, that they were somehow united but they, they weren't united at the level of being one person. That's not good enough because then Jesus Christ isn't God. He just is someone with who's, you know, God, God is a roommate. Like that's, <laughs> well, and that's then, not and, enough. And yeah. then there's the question of when, when Christ suffers on the cross, is it, is it God who is taking this on for us? Or is, is God just kind of, Oh, I'm separate from the humanity of this. And now I'm just going to let, I'm going to let the person take over. Right, 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 right. Even so, you know, January 1st is historically the Feast of the Circumcision. That's what it was on the old calendar. And it's like, well, was the second person of the Trinity circumcised? Because it's something there. So in both those cases, it's so obviously physical, it's so obviously bodily that it's happening in the humanity of Christ. But we would say it's still a divine person with a human nature who undergoes all of these Mm -hmm. things. He doesn't undergo them in his divinity. He undergoes them in his humanity. But it's one person with two natures, whereas Nestorius was arguing for two persons. And then uh, you'll find other people have been uh, monophysites. There's a question of how many monophysites actually were monophysites, where they would say one person and one nature, you know, mixed together. They're like the God human nature becomes just one thing. And it doesn't. So we somehow want to acknowledge that he's fully God, fully man, but still one person that's a really important point or else jesus isn't god you know um that's something that that we we growing up protestant again there's this language of the jesus is fully human fully divine and and so that language is embedded in our heads and then we know the whole thing of well you know jesus is uh Let's let's break out a second some Christ, Christological 101. Uh, make sure that we've got all of our terms correct because the church fought long and hard over these. So you just mentioned one of them that that there's only one person in the person of Jesus. There's not a human person and a divine person. There is uh, there's one person, the divine person who has a human nature and a divine nature. Uh, but then there's also the question of of wills. And then there's a, there, there's like so many different things of, well, there's two of this and then there's just one of this. So kind of yeah. give us that, that, uh, Christological one-on-one breakdown so that we can start from, from the place that the church starts. Yeah. I mean, you can, I can trace it maybe very briefly through time because mm-hmm. the, the big pieces get put in place first and then the little pieces kind of follow. Okay. So the, the early controversies is what well, is Jesus God? Yes. Is he as God, as God the Father? Yes. You know, he is fully divine. He's equal with the Father in his divinity. 
they're to be adored and glorified with the same adoration and glory. Those are kind of the terms in which the church talks about these things. We don't say, well, we'll give like 60% worship to the Holy Spirit and 75 to Jesus and 100% to God the Father. No, he is entirely God. But there are still three persons of the Trinity, that it isn't just one God wearing different hats uh, as one person, that there's a, a real relationship within the Trinity. The Father pours out what it is to be God into the Son and receives that, that total gift of self back, and the, the fruit of that love is the Holy Spirit. That The, the one God isn't uh, one person in the way that, you know, you are one being and one person that this this one divine being is is tripersonal we don't have good analogs for that on earth uh, some of the examples that you'll find used you know uh, um, augustine uses the the intellectual analogy you have like memory and will and uh, i'm actually blanking on the, it's the third one which i'll blame that on the uh <laughs> memory uh, <laughs> that like you have these different parts of the intellect but they all kind of coexist and they form one intellect it, that's not a perfect analogy. Yeah. But what he's getting there is that it isn't one-third of God, one-third of God, one-third of God. Yeah. Uh, but it also isn't just the one thing under different names. You know, in the way that you might be a husband and a father and a podcaster, it's just one person in three different roles. That's not what we mean in the Trinity. Yeah. That is, <clears throat> we, there is one what to God. That's the, the one divine essence. And there's three who's to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's maybe the easiest way uh, to say that, to getting into the, the weeds further. So that's those things are kind of the, the two major poles, if you will, that we want to say Christ is fully God and fully man. I, I didn't even mention that part. One of the very first controversy is Gnosticism, which denies his humanity, which says he didn't really come in the flesh. So he is fully God and fully man. He's not the Father. He's not the Holy Spirit but he is co-equal with them as one divine being. That's kind of foundational stuff. On top of that, you get these questions. First, this question of Nestorianism, is is there one person, one was called hypostasis. Uh, uh, you may have heard the term hypostatic union. A hypothesis is like that which underlies, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> which is a very, and, and it has to be nerdy and technical because there's no other really, clear way of making sure that we're actually saying the same thing and not just using similar words to say different things. Uh, so there's one underlying reality that is Jesus Christ, one divine person with a human nature and a divine nature. That's the controversy that gives rise to the whole question of calling Mary the mother of God. From that, there are then these other questions of, okay, then, if he is a divine person with a full human nature and a full divine nature, does he have a human will or just a divine will? Mm -hmm. And uh, relatedly, does he have a human soul or just a divine, you know, indwelling? And the church says, yes, he has a human will. Yes, he has a divine will. That when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, not my will, but yours be done, this is not speaking to some kind of tension within the Trinity, that there's, you know, a divergence of the first and second person of the Trinity's right. wills. He's saying, in my humanity, that desire for self-preservation is such that I, I would, obviously, like, you, you want to fight for your life. But he's laying down his human will, putting it perfectly in accordance with the Father, freely uh, cooperating with that. And we see the activity of his human will. 
So when we say Christ is fully God and fully man, we mean he has a human soul, he has a human will, he has a human intellect. Uh, the modes of knowledge then become really interesting. Is it possible for him to have been ignorant of things? You know, as an infant, was he just pretending he couldn't speak? Or could he actually not speak? You know, those those kind of questions will follow from that. Uh, so that's, there's not an easy way, obviously, uh, to get into that. But hopefully you can see that if you get those things wrong, mm-hmm. then you're misunderstanding something about who Jesus is. That if you think that he's just pretending to be human in, in these important ways, he's just pretending to have a human soul, a human will, a human brain, uh, that actually doesn't do justice to the incarnation. Now, Joe, one of the things that you mentioned early on is that uh, Nestorius suggested that we stop calling Mary the Theotokos. So we see that this was something defined, that yes, we're going to call her the Theotokos dogmatically. Here it is at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Mm -hmm. Um, But as is the case with all of the councils and all the decisions in the councils, the only time that we step up and say, no, this is how it's going to be, is when that's challenged. And so we see the practice quite a bit older even than the council because the the controversy came when Nestoria said, we're going to stop doing this. Just like with Trent, the, 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 um, it was when they said, oh, well, we're no longer going to do these practices that the church said, oh, let's step back a little bit because we're going to preserve what has been practiced for some time. So it's not that we're inventing these things at councils. It's that we are preserving these things at councils. Exactly. It's, it's very convenient to accuse the church, you know, for instance, of adding seven books to the Bible of the Council of Trent. And it's like, no, no, you can find those books referenced uh, in prior ecumenical councils. You can find, you know, the Council of Florence, for instance, gives a biblical canon and, and lists all of those books. But there wasn't a dogmatic definition attached because it wasn't the point of controversy and, until it was. And, and so, those kind of things the church isn't introducing it we're not the ones who are changing things right, right. and so the same is true uh with calling mary theotokos so even though this doesn't get dogmatically defined until 431 as you said the earliest known marian prayer includes reference to mary as theotokos it's called the subtuum prayer uh and we have a a scrap called rylan's papyrus 470 and it dates back probably to about 250 AD. This is like physically the copy of the prayer that we have. They set back that, that long. The prayer itself is probably older, maybe much older than that. For the simple reason that most of the time when you pray, you don't write your prayers down. And most of the time when you do write your prayers down, they're not preserved for 1750 years. Right. Uh, and, and so we happen to have uh, this, this very ancient Greek papyrus that, has a prayer that, that says, Beneath your compassion we take refuge, O Theotokos. Do not despise our petitions in time of trouble, but rescue us from dangers, only pure, only blessed one. That's, I think, really important for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of Protestants have this vision of church history they've been taught where this the ball for Marian devotion gets rolling really late in the life of the church, maybe 500, maybe 1000 A.D., that you know, somewhere in the Middle Ages, there the Dark Ages, and there's this this kind of obscure point that we don't really know much about, and, and we go in pretty Christian, we come out with all this weird Marian stuff, and and so then the Reformation has to happen, and and that's just not a true version of history. Yeah, that we we see Marian devotion. The fact that the Council is in Ephesus 
is probably not coincidental because that's where John was with the Virgin Mary, that Ephesus is a very Marian city in antiquity, that, you know, there is a real sense of defending the honor of Mary as well as defending this dogmatic content about who Jesus is. And those two things are, are not really separable. You, you don't say you love someone and then insult their mom. And, and so, <laughs> you know, like, those, those kinds of questions are what's going on. So I think it's, yeah, it's important to realize that Marian devotion, including under the title Theotokos, it predates the Nestorian controversy, predates the Council of Ephesus by probably a couple centuries at least. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer, staff apologist at Catholic Answers, about the the title Mary, Mother of God, about the title Theotokos, as uh, as we hear it in the Greek. Um, earlier, you mentioned this this indivisible nature of of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the human and and divine natures. Um, that has implications for how we understand our own bodies. Uh, I, I grew up, again, in the Protestant church where there was almost this kind of Gnostic sense of, well, I am a, a human person living in a body, and then when I die, you can do whatever to this body because I'm going to be with God in heaven. Uh, but in the Catholic church, we have this view of the human person that is a body-soul composite that, uh, yes, there's going to come a time when we die and our souls are going to be separated from our body and that we will still be longing for the resurrection as we are with God in heaven because it is when we have not not our new bodies, not uh, heavenly—we we talk about heavenly bodies as if there's going to be like this uh, reconstitute—well, not even reconstitution, this, this creation of uh, something completely separate from what we've had before— uh, with heavenly material, and that's going to be our heavenly bodies. But the church teaches us, n- n- no, we believe in the resurrection of the body. It's this body that we have right here that we're going to be taking with us to heaven. And so if we we talk about, well, if we get the Theotokos wrong, if we get the stuff about Mary wrong, we're going to get stuff about Jesus wrong. But I think it goes even further than that, because then we're going to get stuff about us wrong if we say, well, Jesus became like us in every way, and this is some weird belief, a divergent belief that we have about Jesus, and so now I'm going to apply that also to myself. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a very good point, that N.T. Wright has been very critical of the, this kind of lifeboat Christianity, that like we're here to be saved from creation or from, mm-hmm. from the material world. That has much more to do with the ancient heresy of Gnosticism than it does to do with Christianity. That Christianity is is not the body is bad, matter is bad. That's just not how it is. I mean, and you're right. Like that is, it's a temptation we can easily fall into. I think for a few reasons. One, just because of the weakness and corruption of our bodies, right? Like we have fallen natures. And so we can often find ourselves in the situation St. Paul describes in Romans 7, where, you know, who will save me from this body of sin? You know, like, I want to do the right thing, and then I just find myself weak. The the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as as our Lord says in the garden. Um, That kind of situation can make us just sort of despair of the body, and that's not the Christian response to that. Jesus actually gives, I think, a pretty clear indictment when he says, Basically, the, the the worst sins aren't the sins of the body. It's it's not what goes into the body that corrupts. It's what comes out. That is the things you know, things like pride, that sort of stuff, is actually way more corrupting 
then all of the bodily weaknesses of, oh, you ate too much there. Well, okay, but those sins, uh, C.S. Lewis distinguishes between, you know, sins in your animal nature and then sins of a demonic origin, you know, things like, again, pride, envy, you know, that sort of stuff where animals aren't even capable of those kinds of sins. There's something specifically spiritual about them. Those are actually worse. So one of the consequences of getting this question of our nature's wrong is that we become really obsessed with certain kinds of bodily sins, you know, sins of the flesh and every form that takes, while de-emphasizing sins that are actually more dangerous to our salvation. Uh, that's a problem, right? Like, I'm not saying we should totally de-emphasize sins of the flesh, but we, we need to contextualize them and we need to understand, yeah, these are bad, but there are worse ones. And, and you know, C.S. Lewis gives a specific example that, Many a man has been saved from a smaller fault by appeals to his pride, and the devil is happy to take that trade, that, it, you know, you trade a cough for cancer at a spiritual level. That's, that's just one of those things that kind of flows from getting the view of the body wrong, that we also tend to get the relationship of sins of the flesh and, and sins of the soul uh, or sins of the spirit, you know, mixed up as well. Now, uh, some of the clear ways we see that there's, I keep mentioning C.S. Lewis, but there's a fake quote attributed to him <laughs> that says, uh, you are not a body, you are a soul. And it's like, no, that's totally wrong. Like, you're a body-soul composite. You you are both body and soul. The soul informs the body. Uh, the body is material form to, you know, the, the soul is the form of the body. The, the two coexist they they are together you and so when your soul is in heaven in the presence of god as you said before the resurrection there is going to still be one sense in which you're not in heaven yet that we can talk about your body being in the grave we can talk about you being in the grave we can talk about christ being in the grave on holy saturday uh without denying the immortality of the soul without denying that he also descends to the abode of the dead without denying that you know, the saints who die and are in the grave are also in heaven before God because we're, we're looking at different aspects of the one person. But that unity is something to look forward to. Like, you want to praise God in a human way, which means praising God with your body and your soul. So hopefully you can see there's all sorts of downstream kind of consequences of that. Even the approach, uh, worship differences between Catholic worship, which is extremely bodily. Think about the smell of the incense, the the feel of the cold holy water on your forehead, the taste of the Eucharist, the, the sounds of the music. Uh, uh, there's intentionally a fully human engagement, the, the feel of the kneeling and the standing and the sitting, and each one of those things signifying something else. We, we give worship to God in our bodies, with our bodies, because we are bodily creatures and because we delight in the bodies given to us by God. That's... A, this, again, a consequence of having a, a healthy view of the incarnation, a healthy view of who Jesus is, and in light of that, I think a healthy view of who we are as creatures. Well, I think that when we when we separate that those identities, when we say I am either a body or I am a soul, um, that that we tend we have the opportunity to fall into different kinds of temptations, either to think, oh well. The, the body and the soul are separate and I am this body. And so I'm going to take pride in this body and I'm going to take care of it. And I'm going to, uh, we, we live lives fully in the flesh, right? Fully in, in our, 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 our 
body, I was about to say our humanity, but our humanity again is both, um, that, that ignored spiritual realities altogether. The other side of that, and, and I think the one that those of us who are uh, religious might tend to struggle with more is to say, I don't have to worry about this body. I don't have to take care of it because ultimately this isn't going to matter, but it does because just like Adam was given charge over the garden to tend the garden, um, we have to tend these bodies of ours and the physical realities around us because these are the ones we're taking to heaven. The, The new heaven and the new earth aren't again, just kind of poofed out of new materials. Uh, it is the renewal and the redemption of this heaven and this earth and this body and this physical reality that's going to be made perfect, made perfect by meaning made complete uh, by the redeeming presence of Christ at the end of all time. Yeah, very well said. If you if you really grapple with what St. Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, this notion of being, you know, like planted like a seed, your material body, and then raising a spiritual bottle. He doesn't mean that you like disincarnate. That's the opposite of what he's saying. He, in fact, compares it to the resurrection. That unless we believe in that kind of bodily resurrection for ourselves, then like that, that's one of the consequences of our belief in Jesus's resurrection, that we're going to have a resurrection like he did, which means that if you, if you don't think we get our bodies back, then you don't think he got his body back. And that's a real spiritual problem because his body was there in the tomb and then rose again. And so you can't believe in the resurrection, the rising again, if you think he just got a whole new body, that you know, they just totaled it and said, you know, here's the insurance payment, go get a new body. That's not what happens on Easter Sunday. It's this body, the one in which he lived and died is the one in which he rises again. So two with us the body in which we live and die is the body in which we will rise again but in both cases there's a spiritual transformation and i love the example saint paul gives of you plant a seed you know think about what a seed looks like and then think about the tree or the plant that it produces it's massively different for those of us who maybe live in a more urban or suburban environment popcorn will do the trick (laughs) you know like it's it's one in the same thing that goes in the microwave and comes out but there's a real transformation that happens in unpacking of what's inside in a way that you would never expect from the outside. The only difference I would say in terms of being a good metaphor is that the seed in the tree, what comes out at the end is living and what goes True. into the beginning <laughs> is dead. With popcorn, it's kind of the opposite. One's meant to be consumed and the other is meant to give life. True. But but all, all that all that to say, it's really interesting and I think that it it's... In, um, telling that in this episode where we're talking about Mary and the importance of Mary as a Theotokos, you've noticed that we've not talked a whole lot about Mary yet because all of this points to Christ and to deeper realities. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer, staff apologist over at Catholic Answers about this doctrine of Mary, Mother of God here on the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over at social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And don't go anywhere because there is much more to this conversation right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam. Welcome 
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today on the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, about this doctrine of Theotokos, about Mary being the mother of God. Uh, it's a very old doctrine, as we mentioned in the first segment. Uh, as we talked with Joe Heschmeyer, staff apologist over at Catholic Answers, um, about the implications of what does it mean if 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 Mary is not the mother of God, if she's just the mother of Jesus, the mother of Christ, as opposed to actually bearing his divinity and giving a body to his divinity? The, the, it's, it's complicated. It's like one of those things that you can ask a question uh, that's only five, five words long, and then all of a sudden it's going to take three hours to answer that appropriately <laughs> because of all of the various... Uh, implications that flow from whatever answer you give. Uh, so here we are. We're not going to take five hours. We're going to just take a few more minutes here with uh, Joe Heschmeyer from Catholic Answers. You've got a new book called The Early Church Was the Catholic Church. You can get it now uh, at shop.catholic.com. Um, this is one of those things. We're looking at it and saying, hey, uh, the the church has used this terminology for Mary and elevated Mary for a very long time uh, to the point that even the reformers, uh, as they are called in the Protestant Church, uh, even those early reformers in the 1500s had a very high view of Mary, uh, and now all of a sudden, just a couple hundred years later, that's all but disappeared, except for around Christmas time. Right? We're going to sing those those uh, popular songs about Mary. We're going to put statues of Mary in our front yards and in our living rooms, even if you're Protestant. Um, but it seems like for the most of the year, it's kind of hands off. Uh, how did we get to this place? Maybe you have an answer. Maybe you don't. I don't. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think part of it is that when you watch the forward movement, meaning when you trace the first, say, thousand years of the church, it's not like the early Christians say, here's a fully fleshed out vision of Trinitarian and Christological theology with all of the nuances hammered out. They're focusing on the big issues and then the smaller ones get kind of built from that. Uh, and, and so we're able to see this in, in a real sense development of doctrine. Not that something new has been added to the faith, but that you figure out the big pieces of the puzzle first and the smaller pieces kind of fit in place, uh, you know, corresponding. It, with Protestant the kind of epistemology, like especially when you turn to much more something like a sola scriptura perspective and say we can't trust the councils. I mean, we see this even as far back as Luther. He argues the church councils have erred. Well, if that's true, then we have to go and revisit their work. And the problem is we don't have 2,000 years. We've got this span of our own lifetime, and we're not brilliant theologians. We're ordinary people. And so you're replacing the work of saints and theologians and experts in the councils of the church with your your own limited ability to make sense of the scriptural passages and the scriptural passages are confusing by themselves and how do we know that well because of all the heresies of people trying to make sense of them for the first thousand years that you know so many people well-meaning people like, there's no evidence that Nestorius was just like scheming like with a snidely whiplash mustache saying how can i mislead christians like no he's he's trying to give due honor to God. He's trying to make sense of the scriptural data and 
give justice to a true Christology, and he just gets some things wrong. And so, of course, ordinary Christians in every age, including our own, left to their own devices or suspicious of the church councils or ignorant of their own history, are going to screw these things up as well. It's telling uh, that when you look at like the leading lights in Protestantism, they include people like Wayne Goodham and uh, William Lane Craig, who are heretics on basic points of Christology. William Lane Craig, as brilliant as he is, denies that Christ has a human will. He denies the fullness of the incarnation. They, you know, those kinds of things are basically what I'm suggesting is that using Protestant methodology, you're not going to be able to replicate in your own life what the church took a thousand years to sort out. Yeah, you're just not, and it's arrogant to think otherwise. It's very much the, the problem of modern philosophy where you get people starting with like Descartes thinking that oh, we can scrap Aristotle and everything before and just figure it all out on our on our own. You can't, and and the, the failures of the last 500 years point to that. There's a um. Protestant biblical scholar uh, who is, uh, I'm trying to come up with his name again. He's out at, at Wheaton, uh, John Walton. And he has this phrase that I heard. And of course, the Catholic Church uh, holds this to be true, but, but we say it in quite a lengthier way of saying it. And I like the way that he says this. Scripture was written for us, but not to us. And I think that that's something we often forget, that the language of Scripture, that sometimes these difficult passages that we're having a hard time wrapping our minds around, the audience that received that for the first time, they knew exactly what it meant because it was written to them and to their situation and to their context. And so those words had a particular meaning that for us, it's still valuable. It still gives life. It still has the opportunity as we come to understand it and allow it to be interpreted by the Holy Spirit to give life to us. But it's not something that's just, oh, I understand this first century uh, Greco-Roman Jewish phrase that perfectly. Well, no, we're going to miss the nuance uh, because we're not in that place and in that space and time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, so, you know, the first half, I was I was just kind of saying, you know, whoa, how do we get all the Christology and Trinitarian stuff wrong? That doesn't even get into how, where did Mary disappear, which was your original question. And I think we see that in light of what you just shared with Walton's quote, that the early Christians read Scripture and understood Scripture differently than do modern readers. And I'll, I'll give a couple examples. There's a popular evangelical book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Last I saw it had three quarters of a million copies sold. So it did pretty well. Yeah. Uh, it, at least four editions. I mean, it's a very popular book. In there, it gives some uh, rules for how to interpret the Old Testament. And it, I'm going to just quote a couple of them. It says, the Old Testament narratives are not allegories or stories filled with hidden meanings. While there may be aspects of narratives that are not easy to understand, you should always assume they had meaning for their original hearers, but whatever else, they are not allegories. Now, we agree that they had meaning for their original listeners, but we should also point out things like, you know, in Galatians 4, when St. Paul says that the story of Abraham and Rahab and Abraham and Sarah is an allegory. He explicitly calls it an allegory because this historical event was also a foreshadowing of the relationship between, you know, legalism and, and kind of free covenant of promise. Uh, and then it goes on, uh, the second rule, or I think it's the second rule in how to read the Bible for all it's worth, it says individual Old Testament narratives are not intended to teach moral lessons. The purpose of the various individual narratives is to tell what God did in the history of Israel, 
not to offer moral examples of right or wrong behavior. And that is just diametrically opposed to what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, when he says these things were written for our instruction. He looks at the example of the Exodus and how many of them died in the wilderness. He draws it out as an allegory. He says they were baptized into the sea, and then they had supernatural food and drink, and yet many of them still died. In other words, great, you've been baptized, you've received the Eucharist, but if you reject God, you can still die in your sins. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying. And, and he says these things were written for our instruction. In other words, yes, these things were written down because they're historically true, but there are infinite numbers of historically true events that weren't written down. So why were these ones written down? Well, for moral instruction. Uh, read John 20 about why those events from the life of Christ were chosen. You know, like there's any number of things that could have been included because they historically occurred. My point there is that the early Christians got how to read the Old Testament and got how to read the New Testament in a way that many modern Christians, especially Protestants, but no few Catholics as well, mm -hmm. just don't know how to read it. Well, think... All of that matters when we're talking about Mary, because when we talk about Mary as like the Ark of the New Covenant or Mary as like the Temple Gate, that requires a certain way of reading Scripture for that to be anything other than just kind of nonsensical sounding. And Mary's the epitome of this, right? Mary ponders these things in her heart. If we take a surface level reading of scripture, we're not going to have a lot of room for Mary. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons that the church encourages us and invites us to read scripture with the church to bring in, you know, that when I when I open up my my Bible study software, when I've got verbum open, I always look at Here's my passage of scripture. What did the fathers of the church say? What, do, what, what have the documents of the church said? How do they interpret this? Because these fathers of the church lived in that same cultural context, uh, separated by a couple hundred years at most, um, that, that understood this. And they understood the way that it was written because they were part of that same uh, cultural environment. And so by reading them alongside scripture— we can come to see some of these nuances that we would never think to look at otherwise. Yeah, I explored one of these recently with, with Mary and Joseph and their marriage, that a lot of us have this idea that Mary was an unwed mother, that she mm -hmm. was you know, engaged at the time that the angel came to her. But engagement in that sense doesn't really exist in the ancient world, especially in this Jewish context, that they are in fact legally married. Yeah. Uh, that there were just two stages to a Jewish wedding. So they were legally married but didn't live together yet. That's an important kind of context to understand a lot of things. It, it gives light to why the church believes Mary was perpetually a virgin. The fact that she's married and still confused about how she could possibly have a kid tells us something weird is going on in this marriage. This is not what a normal married couple would say. They're legally able to have sex, but they're clearly not. It also explains why Jesus was allowed in the temple, which seems like something that we miss, you know? Yeah. But a, a child born out of wedlock wasn't allowed in the temple under the Mosaic law. And so Christ is in there purifying the temple. And if he was born out of wedlock or conceived out of wedlock, as, as many people assume, he didn't belong there under the provisions of the law. So back to this idea of, of Theotokos, of Mary being the mother, not just of Jesus, but of the divinity of Jesus, of Mary, the mother of God. This doesn't mean Mary, the mother of God, the father. This doesn't mean that God didn't pre-exist Mary. It means that when Jesus was born in Mary, she had the full divinity of, of God 
of Jesus in her womb at that time. Uh, and you were saying that this is not just an early practice, but there's actually some scriptural uh, practice yeah. to this. Point, we, point we, to this that. is certainly the way that those led by the Holy Spirit approach Mary and approach Jesus. And what I mean by that is in Luke chapter 1, when you see Elizabeth greeting Mary, this is, you know, part of the Hail Mary prayer. She says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Well, the very next verse, this is Luke 1, 43, she says, and why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Well, my Lord there is a reference to divinity. It's reference to God. She's not saying you're the mother of the humanity of Christ but the lordship belongs to his divinity over there, and so you're not really the mother of my lord. No, she says, you're the mother of my lord. Well, And let's, that, let's take this also uh, back to that way of reading the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, this is a parallel to when the Ark of the Covenant was being returned yes. to the people of Israel, coming back into the hill country of Judea, oh, where, we, where we heard that recently. Uh, and, and the person who is... Uh, receiving the ark and needs to stay at their house for a while. He says, how is it that the ark of my Lord should come to me? Oh, it's actually a little edgier even than that. It's 2 Samuel 6. And uh, David is trying to move the ark into the into the new capital city because he's just set up his new political capital. He wants the ark of the covenant there. He didn't get permission from God to move it. And he didn't follow the legal ways he was supposed to move it. And so they're going through the hill country of Judah uh, the ark starts to slip off of the cart it's not supposed to be on. A fellow by the name of Uzzah touches the ark. He's struck dead. And David, it says in verse 9, was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So he's almost scheming, whereas Elizabeth is just very humbly receiving. And so you have mother of my Lord, ark of the Lord. Uh, and the parallel there is not lost on the early Christians. And the fact that you're in the hill country of Judah in both cases... They both begin the narrative by saying that the person arose and went. They're there for three months. John the Baptist leaps in the womb before the Lord. David dances before the ark. Like, all of these parallels are there. They're chock full of these connections. That's getting back to what I was starting to say earlier. Like, the early church saw this and really mined this because they had an understanding for the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. And especially a relationship of what's called types or typology, that these things in the Old Testament prefigure things in the New Testament. If you don't take that, if you actually ascribe to a view that rejects all of that deeper meaning, then these are just like random historical events that happen to happen sometime before Christ and have nothing to tell us. They're yeah. just things that are written, you know, that, that misses everything. Well, and, and this isn't just that kind of Bible code, oh, I'm going to find something in Scripture that isn't there. The New Testament authors chose their words very carefully and particularly so, that, so as to draw those allusions, so as to give more information about what they meant about Christ and what they meant about Mary. And this is, again, something where when you read the earliest recipients of these writings, they were attuned to that, partly because... They're reading it in the original languages. They're reading it in the cultures in which these things were arose, in the controversies that were, you know, raging at the time. In the same way that if I said to you, you know, four score and seven years ago, I did this thing, you would immediately recognize an allusion to the Gettysburg Address. Someone reading this transcript like 300 years from now in a different language is probably going to miss that and just think, oh, this must be an archaic way of, of speaking English that we're not used to. You know, all of that is kind of lost down the road, which is why 
we don't have to, yeah, I, I love the example of Bible code, that it's this attempt to get the deeper meaning of scripture in this weirdly Gnostic kind of Kabbalist sort of way of like counting the number of letters. It's like maybe uh, just read what the earliest recipients thought that these things meant and let's start that with that. And it turns out they recognized deeper meanings in these things and it didn't require number codes. It just required kind of a, a sense of the whole of scripture being one organized unity in which the earlier parts prefigure things that are going to come later. Well, and as we, as we look to scripture, it's, I used to think if, if only we could know how the early church worshiped or what the early church, when I was, when I was Protestant, if only we could know how the early church thought about these things. And then just kind of one day it struck me uh, as if, as if for the first time I had this awareness all on my own of, you know what, they, they, they were accustomed to writing. They wrote us the gospels. They wrote us the epistles. They, they continued to write after that. We just didn't include it in the book. Right. We have the letters of St. Clement. We have the shepherd of Hermes. We have all of these other writings from the very earliest centuries that help us gain context and, and unpack what the early church believed about the Bible. Because as you say in your book, uh, the early church was the Catholic church. You can get that book over at shop.catholic.com. Joe, it's always a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure being here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully people didn't feel disappointed we talked so much about Christ and not that much about Mary. But that's exactly what we do with <laughs> the Marian exactly doctrines. The right, 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 right. Exactly. Once you get into them, you can't not talk about Jesus Christ because that's why we care about these things. It, even even here, even as we talk about Marian doctrines, the uh, the fulfillment of the Magnificat comes to bear. The soul of Mary magnifies the Lord. That's yes. that's her whole mission, and it's the whole the, the whole downstream of those Marian doctrines is to magnify the Lord, not only to say to to make Him large, to to make Him great, but also to bring clarity to those minute details that might otherwise get missed. Pleasure hey, to have man, you, Joe. Well said. Yeah, my pleasure being here. Thank you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Joe Heschmeyer or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Not only that, but there is an extra segment each and every week that's available to all those who support the show through Patreon. To learn more about that support community, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. In the top right-hand corner of the page, you'll see a link that says Patreon-support-the-show. There you can listen to a couple of the free extra segments that are sprinkled there throughout. And consider being a part of that support community to get the extra content each and every week. Now, last week we talked a little bit about um, we were going to do a carol sing. You were going to be invited. It was going to show up on my Facebook live feed. Uh, um, we uh, we lost our heater, and uh, and then we lost uh, our hot water. We had a, a pipe explosion as we were in the single-digit temperatures. And so all of those things got put on hold. I apologize if you were there looking for it. Uh, we're going to see if we can reschedule here very soon before the end of the Christmas season. Uh, keep a watch there over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. We'll announce it if we're able to get that done. Uh, and we'd love to have you be a part of that as we sing Christmas carols together as we're still, still in the middle of this Christmas season. Uh, but now with the little time we have left today, let's turn our attention to our readings from scripture 
and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the doctors and fathers of the church, magisterial documents, catechism, and commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more by going to verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke. We read this during the uh, during the week, uh, the octave of Christmas. Uh, this is from Luke 2. It's the presentation of the Lord of the Temple, and we celebrate that in the liturgical calendar on February 2nd. Uh, but again, this reading comes from the octave. And we hear this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And even here, it's just amazing to me, as you look at the messages that were given to Mary, uh, first, of course, you have the Annunciation. Then she goes and Elizabeth proclaims to her again what God is doing. And then the shepherds, upon their visit, they come and they retell all that God has done. And Mary heard and pondered those things in her heart as she looked at the message, again, that was being compounded, built upon, built upon, built upon. Uh, and so here she hears the message of the angels. And then now she goes at the presentation to take Jesus into the temple. She's approached first by Simeon and then by Anna. And again, all of these prophecies are following them wherever she goes. And so to answer the question that has popped up on our radio dials all over the Christmas season, yes, Mary knew. She's been told over and over again who this child would be. And so now, now she recounts these things as she's pondered them in her heart. She recounts these things to Christ as he grows to let him know and to remind him, this is what was said about you by the angels. This is what was said about you by the prophets. This is what was said about you when the angel Gabriel came and spoke to me and told me. She's recounting these things over and over to Christ. And as we see with the Marian doctrines, as we proclaim things to be true about Mary, she continues to teach us and to proclaim to us what is true about Jesus. Our reading from church history today comes from a letter by St. Athanasius. 
And this uh, we read every year on the Feast of the, the Solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God, uh, in the Office of Readings and the Breviary. The Apostle tells us, The Word took to himself the sons of Abraham, and so had to be like his brothers in all things. He had then to take a body like ours. This explains the fact of Mary's presence. She is to provide him with a body of his own, to be offered for our sake. Scripture records her giving birth and says, She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Her breasts which fed him were called blessed. Sacrifice was offered because the child was her firstborn. Gabriel used careful and prudent language when he announced his birth. He did not speak of what would be born in you to avoid the impression that a body would be introduced into her womb from outside. He spoke of what will be born from you so that we might know by faith that her child originated within her and from her. By taking our nature and offering it in sacrifice, the Word was to destroy it completely and then invest it with his own nature. And so prompt the apostle to say, this corruptible body must put on incorruption. This mortal body must put on immortality. This was not done in outward show only, as some have imagined. This is not so. Our Savior truly became man, and from this man has followed the salvation of man as a whole. Our salvation is in no way fictitious, nor does it apply only to the body. The salvation of the whole man, that is, of soul and body, has really been achieved in the Word himself. What was born of Mary was therefore human by nature, in accordance with the inspired scriptures. And the body of the Lord was a true body. It was a true body because it was the same as ours. Mary, you see, is our sister, for we are all born from Adam. The words of St. John, the word was made flesh, bear the same meaning as we may see from a similar turn of phrase in St. Paul, Christ was made a curse for our sake. Man's body has acquired something great through its communion and union with the Word. From being mortal, it has been made immortal. Though it was a living body, it has become a spiritual one. Though it was made from the earth, it has passed through the gates of heaven. Even when the Word takes a body from Mary, the Trinity remains a trinity with neither increase nor decrease. It is forever perfect. In the Trinity we acknowledge one Godhead, and thus one God, the Father of the Word, is proclaimed in the Church. That reading comes from a letter by St. Athanasius. And just a reminder, St. Athanasius lived very early. He was born in 296 and died on the 2nd of May in 373. So even this early, we see this uh, this doctrine of pointing to Mary specifically to tell us something particular about Christ and therefore about our own redemption. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening on this, your New Year's Day. Today's show is brought to you by Christopher Robin Webster and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link and join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.